1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Doria, and I am the host of the History of Science uh, uh, section of the New Books uh, Network podcast. I have the uh, honor to be joined today by, by Professor Omar uh, Nazim, who is the author of a fascinating new book just published by the MIT uh, Press, The Astronomer's Chair. And uh, uh, today we will be discussing with, uh, with Professor Nazim about, uh, about this uh, extremely intriguing and fascinating uh, work. So thank you for, uh, for joining me uh, today, Professor Nazim. And uh, so I will start with a classic uh, question. So uh, can you uh, briefly introduce uh, yourself uh, as, uh, as an academic and, uh, and tell to our, our listeners
0: what are your research interests? So thank you very much, Karina, for having me. Um, I'm honored to be here, and I'm very much looking forward to the discussion. As to your question about my own academic um, pathway, it is a bit convoluted. Um, I did start off as a philosopher. I did my bachelor's and my PhD in philosophy, but I also did work in the history of philosophy, which in my PhD already um, took me into the history of science, specifically history of mathematics, um, logic, but also psychology. Um, Afterwards, my very first job that I did get uh, for my PhD was actually at the Max Planck Institute for the history of science in Berlin, where I basically uh, from then on in uh, donned the hat of a historian of science. And I've never looked back. and as a historian of science, my, my pathways have taken me through many different places, not just philosophy, but I've also worked in art history institutes, visual uh, studies uh, institutes, image institutes, but also I've worked with colleague, colleagues who do literature studies, media studies. Uh, so my work is very, very reflective of these kinds of pathways I've taken in my, in my career as interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary. And uh currently I'm a professor for the history of science at the University of Regensburg in Germany uh, where I lead a group of um, very enthusiastic very good uh, researchers, postdocs, doctoral students and master students uh, working at, on many different topics in the history of science
1: thank you thank you for uh, for this uh, for this presentation uh, I will be uh, i propose to just uh, Start uh, uh, discussing discussing on your book by well the the more uh, the most uh, immediate question is uh, uh, where uh, uh, the idea of uh, doing extensive research in writing and writing mono- a monography on uh, a sp- very specific uh, object of material culture, the astronomer's shares, Where uh, this idea uh, comes uh, comes from?
0: Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um... It is. It is. I have to say, quite a quite a unique uh, question, and that is because um, it seems as if many have not written about such a thing before. And how I got to it itself is a kind of story. Um, partly to answer your previous question as well, my my research is you know really dedicated to uh, image making in the sciences, and specifically you know how images function with observation specifically and i've written a book called the observing behind that actually details the drawing practices in astronomy for instance in the 19th century i'm currently working on astrophotography and so i'm very much a historian of astronomy of the 19th century and in this uh work in these multiple different research uh, avenues i've taken You you confront images from the 19th, 20th, and earlier centuries of astronomers at work. Um, Typically, you see them at the telescope. And uh, I was struck uh, at some point just by how many of these images of astronomers, whether they're engravings or photographs of astronomers at the telescope, actually showed them with a chair, in a chair, or basically a chair by itself empty next to a telescope. And it made me wonder uh, what's going on there, especially because there's a major increase of these kinds of images, especially, again, showing the chair um, of the astronomers in the observatory to a kind of public. Um, And this increases in the 19th century and the 20th century. And it got me wondering what is going on when images are so important to these cultures, to these times. Um, What message were these images meant to convey to audiences, to the astronomers' audiences? And so I began to dig for the meaning, the significance um, of these chairs in uh, the cultures of the 19th century, European cultures, American cultures of the 19th and early 20th centuries. And so in many ways, it was a question that dawned on me. Uh, as I was doing my other research in in the history of photography and astronomy and drawing practices and generally the history of astronomy and it was in the course of that research that I encountered just hundreds and hundreds of these images and it 's funny because um, every time I you know point that out, uh, my fellow colleagues begin to they all begin to see these chairs like, for the first time as well, and that 's really the point uh. It's really identifying something that's always been under our nose, but no one's sort of uh, honed in on it and isolated it for study, and that's what I'm trying to do here.
1: Yes, thank you. Well, this is—I know that is a tricky question because uh, uh, it's uh, the asking uh, a, a, an academic where the origin, uh, the idea of uh, uh, of his or her work comes from, uh, uh, can be in a way that deceiving in the sense that uh, the 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 answer are so different and uh, so. That comes from uh, real life uh, that the uh, listeners are quite disappointed. Oh, I thought it was a more profound uh, reason, elaborated <laughs> <laughs> intellectual. But no, just because I saw a lot of these uh, sources and I asked myself question about them. <laughs> um, so, uh, but just yeah, exactly. Starting... <laughs> But you start your book not uh, discussing uh, the, uh, the astronomer's chair, but discussing uh, the uh, chairs uh, in general and uh, pieces of furniture and highlighting especially how charge of meaning uh, were, have been uh, this piece of furniture from a social and cultural perspective since uh, the more uh, times, since very far away in history.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no. So... Um... So in order to then try to make sense of these chairs, I had to really then uh, understand chairs more generally. So you have the astronomers' highly specific chair. Maybe I should say a bit more what these chairs are because the astronomers' chairs uh, uh, in the 19th century and parts of the 20th century are very much task-specific, specialized and mechanized chairs that are used in conjunction with the telescope to help the astronomer continuously and smoothly access the eyepiece at all elevations, at all sort of rotations of the telescope. Uh, So it is a piece of furniture that was considered for a period, especially in the 19th century, as essential to working at the telescope for the astronomer and for making observations. And so you have this highly specific task-specific chair now and how do you access its meaning or significance, especially as an image, when it's being shown in images in newspapers, in magazines, in periodicals, in specialized astro- astronomical texts, in uh, in in uh, me- memoirs of of obser- uh, of astronomers, in, uh, in- institute re- reports, observatory reports? You're finding these images of chairs. Uh, you're also finding them in, in, like I said, in newspapers as well. So it's it's a wide range of places where this image is being shown of chairs, of the astronomer's chair. So I, I realized this is a wider phenomenon. Uh, and so not just in terms of how many different kinds of astronomer's chairs there are, but also the kind of audience that we're seeing these images was quite wide. And um, one way then to access um, the significance of the astronomer's mechanized task-specific specific chair was to understand it in the context of chairs more generally. And that's what the first chapter of the book really is about. And that is trying to make sense of 19th century cultures um, and social uh, gentility (laughs) around uh, chairs uh, and what one finds is that the chair is a not just a place to sit, <laughs> but it's an indicator. It's an index of one's uh, social status. It's an index of one's um, how one uh, privy is one to the social agenda of a salon, of a room, of a certain kind of atmosphere. And so when one displays... Again, it's very much a spectator kind of a sport. When once when one displays a, a lack of understanding of how to use some of these salon chairs, side chairs, easy chairs, one is also displaying one's lack or um, misplacement in those places. In other words, you're not socially uh, allowed to be there. You're, and so the, the chair as a piece of furniture acted as a kind of uh, gatekeeper, uh, and it. So the chair itself within these European salons and different uh, sort of contexts um, uh, indicated, it indexed so much more. Um, It also indexed hygiene, for instance. Um, The uh, chairs were uh, designed and they functioned also to um, alleviate certain forms of disease, illness, even to help with the eyesight. And so there's also these functional chairs that played a major role in the 19th century kind of um, a perspective on the chair as not just something, again, to be sat in, but that reflected one's status, one's um, place in society. And I speak about hierarchies, and chairs are very much indicators of these hierarchies. Uh, hierarchies not just of class, uh Uh, of where one is in society, but can also uh, uh, relay hierarchies of wellness and illness and fitness. And um, so that chapter is very important because it is meant to basically lay the groundwork for the idea that chairs are um, uh, physiognomic devices. In other words, they indicate character. They indicate what is... um, more than meets the eye Um, and this becomes one of the essential premises for the rest of the book because then the question becomes obviously if that's how chairs were seen then when astronomers presented their chairs to the same audiences what did those audiences see then in those chairs when chairs played such an important role in that visual culture and um, that is, becomes the main question of the book. And that's what I'm trying to answer is, is I'm trying to resuscitate a kind of visual culture of a particular period, most around 1830 to about 1880, 1890. I'm trying to resuscitate a certain kind of period lens of visual culture on the chair and then trying to use that lens to understand how they then would have seen um, the astronomer's chair and what it would have indexed for them as a particular signifier of, of meanings, a set of meanings, a set of values um, that include hierarchies, uh, that include um, n- not just well-being and fitness and health and energy, but also things like you know the status of the astronomer. And essentially, at the end of the day, it's about the persona of the astronomer. So you know, in that chair, what persona is being depicted for that audience, and that becomes the setup. That's the first chapter. and so there's a lot of uh, uh, why well, I'm using a lot of um, uh, sources from uh, furniture history, design historians uh, they've written extensively on these kinds of cultural aspects. Uh, and indexical aspects of the chair and furniture in the 19th century. And I've used a lot of that, but I've also done my own sort of original work. And one of the things I do there that I hope design historians will actually maybe um, uh, uh, benefit from is I've tried to also situate the chair into a kind of a historicism. And this is another hierarchy of the chair. So the, the, the chair doesn't just represent hierarchies in class, but it, also is historicized. That is, the chair is seen as an indicator of civilization, an indicator of a higher state of civilized being that certain nationalities, certain peoples occupy, whereas others do not. And that the difference between the chaired and the unchaired will also become very important later on in the book.
1: Yes, this is, this is fascinating because, well, uh, we tended to associate the, uh... Um, a specific person uh, with uh, the place where uh, the person is seated. Uh, I think mostly in the case of king and queens uh, for the throne. Not for, but this is absolutely true for uh, every kind of people. <laughs> tell yes. me how, we, how you use uh, one chair, and I'll tell you a lot of things about things about you, who you are, how educated you are, what is your social status, and so on.
0: That's uh, right that's right that's absolutely right. so the most obvious form of that is the throne, but then we have the papal uh you know the the papal chairs uh, we have you know there's someone who chairs a meeting um, we have these sort of we still have this idea that the chairs is, is signifies a certain kind of authority, but also if you know if somebody's given a stool um in a court. That also represents a lack of authority, for instance, and so a lot of the court culture by the nineteenth century gets translated into uh, the salon, into the parlor rooms, into uh, the middle class cultures, and so that's what I'm tracking as well: how those, how those more courtly um, etiquette cultures get translated into middle class bourgeoisie. Uh, atmospheres and and, and environments where this kind of stuff is happening. And where a lot of these assumptions about the chair continue to some degree or other um, in terms of being indicators, representational devices for who one is, you know, in their character, in their class, in their race, even, and so on.
1: And uh, uh, this, uh, I assume, is even more uh, um, evident for uh, chairs that are linked, uh, that are built for a specific profession, that are linked to, uh, that are literally intertwined with the process of professionalization of uh, of of labor.
0: Absolutely, and that's where then the next chapter uh, really gets into that. So once I've established. The importance of the chair in a social environment in social environment but also a cultural context of Europe and the America and America and, and even Great Britain uh, and specifically with, in, with regards to the middle class and the bourgeoisie. I then in the chapter following that move on to another component of the chair and that is this idea of the mechanized chair. And again, I'm sort of narrowing down to the astronomer's chair which is a subspecies of that mechanical type of chair. And so to do that, I actually put the astronomer's chair into the context of other mechanized chairs, such as the barber chair, the surgical chair, which also happen to have histories um, connected to specialization, differentiation, and professionalization. And so there in that chapter, which in the book is, I I think I call it chapter three, um, mechanized comfort, and we should talk about comfort as well, by the way. Um, that this this uh, that in chapter three that these kinds of what what furniture historians call patent chairs become highly specialized, highly mechanized kinds of chairs that are patented throughout Europe, Europe, but especially in the United States, where patent laws are basically much easier than in Europe, and you get these. Um, not just chairs in the dentist room or the surgical room, but also, you know, newly patented mechanical chairs that recline, uh, office chairs, chairs that are made for certain professions like in the uh, in the photographic studio. Um, uh, so chairs get attached also to bodily comportments uh, that relate to professions um, and very specific kinds of tasks. And this is where the idea of differentiation becomes very important, because with specialization of these chairs in their mechanized and finally, finally attuned um, uh, relationships to the human body, you also get this um, further differentiation of what the chairs meant to help the body do, uh, whether the body is the patient or the body is the. Uh, uh, is the one who operates uh, or is using the chair for other purposes, for example, to play the piano, or you know, to you know, um, to do multiple other kinds of tasks. So you get this phenomenon in the 19th century of patent chairs that are me- mechanized and are related to professions, are related to specializations, um, and they're related to comfort. And this goes uh, something that I already bring up in the first chapter um, that connects to the middle class and the bourgeois, and that is this very crucial idea of comfort that arises in the 19th century. Comfort is a a very important concept that helps the middle classes to differentiate themselves from the aristocrats, who they see as taking a bodily form that they call the easy manner. The comfort of the middle classes has a very different bodily comportment. And their new chairs of the 19th century, for example, the easy chair, a recliner, um, begin to reflect this new value of comfort rather than the easy manner. And comfort is attached to a kind of etiquette. It's a kind of it's also attached to a kind of bodily performance. um, And it becomes a major value of the middle classes that comfort is what they seek. And um, that's what they demand. And many of the furniture uh, suppliers are basically um, uh, specializing their chairs and making them functionable so as to meet that demand of comfort. So you get this rise of comfort, the comfort chairs, um, and these these this idea of comfort. Then is by I also bring this up in the next chapter or is mechanized. So comfort itself becomes mechanized. And so many of the patented recliners um, that have springs and all kinds of wenches and, and gear systems um, are connected to comfort. There's also this idea of the invalid chair. That's very important a part of the story, where a lot of the patents are going um, and where a lot of the, the mechanization technologies related to chair and seat furniture um are going so that is the wheelchair what we call a wheelchair um, so there's the invalid chair what happens is a lot of that technology a lot of that design a lot of that uh, um the, the striving for comfort gets translated from the wheelchair right into you know the recliner and the easy chair that one finds in the living rooms and the parlor rooms and the salons of the middle classes um, comfort becomes very important and that then That's the context in which I dropped the astronomer's chair. And one will find that it as a mechanized chair, as a specialized chair, as a chair that is differentiated in its mechanized parts, but also in how it helps the body to perform, is exactly where the astronomer is also seen as a specialist. So the chair is related and associated to specialisms. And so the astronomer in his chair is also showing and indexing a kind of specialism, a kind of differentiation, um, and that his bodily comportments are specialized and attuned to his work, and that's what it's meant to show his audiences. But it's also meant to um, it's also meant to show comfort, and this relates to uh, another a number of other issues that I think will come up as we. Go further.
1: Yes, but indeed, the the idea of comfort is really central to understand. uh, To understand, uh, the uh, goes literally throughout uh, several sections of uh, of your uh, of your book, and uh, it is uh, fascinating the fact that uh, this idea of of comfort uh, it's not uh, really associated with laziness. It's not associated with uh, aristocratic uh, uh, absence of needing to work, uh, no fatigue uh, at all. It's very much uh, a uh, middle-class value that fits within uh, the values of the Industrial Revolution.
0: Absolutely. And this gets to the heart um, uh, of one of of the big essential components of the book, of the fundamental cores of the book, and that is this. When I was confronted with these images of astronomers basically looking like they're laying in their chairs and they're reclining and they're recumbent in chairs, and they're looking very comfortable in these chairs, it, it immediately evoked um, the literature in the history of science that actually argues that masculinity in science is, a, is displayed and shown in ruggedness, in danger, in, in severity, in, in riskiness to one's body. And so it made me think. Well, what's going on here? Are these are these sh- uh, chairs actually sh- showing something uh, that is not masculine um, in their comfort? Um, how are we to understand these um, recumbent astronomers in their comfortable chairs in light of those assumptions about masculinity in the nineteenth century in science? And so, one of the essential things that I tried to do here is show that comfort, as one of the furniture historians has put it, um, is very much a masculine value. And that the seeking of comfort in the 19th century, according to furniture historians, isn't just reflected in their chairs, but it will also be found in their ruggedness in you know, the wilderness of the colonies. Um, they will, and This is done by them bringing their chairs along with them. Uh, and so comfort then is um needs to be understood here uh, i I think in the context of the middle class culture and what it 's meant to show and what ends up happening by the end of the of the book is I try to link up and try to show that actually, despite appearances what 's really being shown in these images of apparent comfort is very much still masculinity and we 'll get to why that is. But back to comfort per se. Also, I think it's important to um, uh, highlight that um, that comfort it wasn't some benign value for the astronomers. In fact, I show that that the astronomers' chair uh, was very much designed um, to function with comfort in mind by astronomers themselves, and that astronomers were very keen to preserve this value of comfort in what they were uh, in in the kinds of seat furniture they used at the observatory, especially in conjunction with the telescope. In fact, one of the most famous telescopes of the 19th century century is James Naismith's um, design, which he actually literally called the Comfortable Telescope. That's his terms. And um, that's not a coincidence. And so what what I'm showing, I'm able to explain that this is much more than just a accidental uh, label but rather represents an entire value system of a certain class of society in Western Europe in the 19th century. And that observing chairs, that is the astronomer's chair, is a reflection of those value systems. And it's not something accidental, but rather essential to them, uh, a reflection of them. And that's why when audiences are presented with these images of comfortable, comfortably seated astronomers at work, they're also seeing... Not just specialization, status, um, professionalization, specialisms, but also they're seeing, um, as I I will argue, um, masculinity, uh, but also um, they're seeing something that they can relate to as middle class um, consumers of these images who also value comfort in similar ways.
1: Yes, and it's it's quite. Uh, I mean, uh, it's not uh, immediately evident uh, because uh, if one uh, take a look, uh, if look at uh, uh, an example of one astron- astronomer's chest of nineteenth century, our listener cannot cannot uh, cannot see uh, images, but they are very complicated, uh, complex devices that looks very difficult to to operate, and it's hardly to imagine that they might be actually
0: comfortable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, like many things in history, comfort itself as a value um, may not always match up with what we take to be comfortable. Um, and, you know, what they may have, may have regarded as comfortable uh, should be regarded in, in their contexts and how they understand it. And, uh, and the, one of the most oft um, uh, cited uh this you know, things to desire in the observing chair by 19th century astronomers was comfort, um, and so, so again, this is a matter of perception. So for us, it may not look very comfortable in some in some context. Again, there's many kinds of observing chairs. Some will look very comfortable to us. Some others will not. But that's besides the point. What's really the point here is actually identifying as a comfort as a value for the 19th century astronomers, and this is really important to stress who themselves. We're actually spending the money, spending the time to design these chairs for themselves. So these chairs are not just some sort of auxiliary matter. It is something extremely important to their observations. And yet they are embedded within middle class bourgeois value systems uh, that are very operative in the design and in the function
1: yes and another another uh, aspect of uh, uh, characteristic that you you uh, know illustrate very uh, very well it's uh, how these uh, the chair was the result of a cooperation between uh, astronomers and, uh, and the technicians let's uh, let's say of mutual yeah, expertise so, together
0: yeah that's yeah so so, so often what happens is that dis- the the astronomers will design these chairs they will draw them out they will they will uh, specify what they want and they will send them out to carpenters or upholsters even uh, even um, their own technicians uh, in in house uh, in the observatory to develop you know to actually construct and put together these chairs them. So there is this kind of relationship to to the technical class as well uh, in in the development and design of these chairs. The question of design of these chairs is a very interesting question and one of the things here, again, uh, speaking now to the design historians, what I do here is that I show that there are certain kinds of mechanized uh, chairs that were designed not by engineers but by astronomers themselves that were not patented. So there's an entire sub-series of mechanized chairs that are not patented but but are shared amongst astronomers themselves so you will find actually an astronomer designing a chair and then sharing it with other astronomers in journals at meetings i found i found evidence of of, of astronomers bring smaller models of their chairs to meetings to show other astronomers the 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 benefits of that design. Uh, so there was a lot of sharing of these designs going on uh, amongst astronomers themselves. Uh, and they did spend a lot of time in this. Again, that's something, a note for a historian, that, you know, that this has to be taken seriously. Um, and this also relates to a very uh, another essential and fundamental point of the book. And that is I'm connecting visual culture to material cultures here. And that's really in, an important, I think, innovation here that I'm trying to put forward to the benefit of my colleagues and other historians who work in these areas. And what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to say, look, in understanding the visual culture, we could actually then make claims about and get a comprehension about the material culture of something. And so one of the claims then is saying that In understanding the values of the observing chair in the perception of the audience who are seeing these images, one is also able to tease out the values that go into the design of the material item itself. And the very very function of the material object itself can be understood in the context of the same value systems that also feed into the visual culture of that time. So there's an overlapping, and and so overlapping between the visual and the material culture by way of what I'm calling a representational field. And this is the field uh, of values and assumptions that feed into and actually even condition the visual and the material cultures in, in their own respective ways, but in shared ways. And so that's why I'm trying to use the visual culture to also inform our understanding of how those chairs actually functioned as objects
1: yes and this is another aspect that uh, that uh it's very, it's uh, it's clear by the, the the numerous the the very rich iconographic apparatus of uh, of your book these these devices were displayed in uh, profession, to professional in uh, exhibitions so they are published in catalogs that was seen by by a broader uh, uh, public so definitely uh, Taking taking the visual cultural aspects out uh, would be uh, not not it would be not possible to understand uh, this uh, uh, this item in all its uh, its meaning and functions. And uh, uh, Absolutely. yes, in, uh, I even I even
0: I even give ex- I even give examples of 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 uh, you know uh, tours giving of observatories. Where ladies and gentlemen are at the observatory, and they're actually shown, visualized in images, around observing chairs, and 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 uh, and admiring the observing chair itself uh, for what it is.
1: And uh, speaking about uh, uh, about gender, uh, a question is uh, that uh, I was thinking about: uh, uh, Have you ever encountered uh, images in which a female astronomer is? Uh depicted using an astronomer's chair or it was very much exclusively uh, an item uh, uh, conceived for uh, a masculine use.
0: Yeah, so um, I I searched low and wide uh, uh, for uh, images of women in an observing chair and I did find one of Maria Mitchell at the Smithsonian, which was turned into a postcard, again showing just how widely these things were uh, distributed. Um, But if you see the image, and I've got it actually in my book. By the way, the book is filled with images. It's about 105 images, and this is one of them. Uh, and the only one, actually, of, of a woman uh, being shown in an observing chair. And when you look at it, and compared to the men in the chairs that are all around it, it looks very awkward. In fact, Maria Mitchell's not looking through the telescope, and she's looking sort of as in a slanted way, and she's got her arms crossed, and she looks very, very uncomfortable in that in that situation. Um that aside, um, the the point really is, I mean, is that um, that these chairs are also functioning in relationship to a certain kind of person, um, and that is a very much a racialized and genderized um, st- astronomer. That is a, a man, and is specifically a European man. Um, and this is something we, we we get to at the last chapter. But before we get there, we need to isolate the issue of gender. And that, so we've gotten basically to specialize, specialize, uh, specialization, professionalization of the astronomer. We've gotten to the, you know, the function of these chairs. But it, we're still not done. And one of the things that really struck me um, was in finding images of astronomers, I came across an entire series um, all throughout the 19th century of images of Orientals drawn, quote-unquote Orientals, uh, drawn by Western artists of astronomers, um, non-Western astronomers, who are never shown seated in any kind of chair. In fact, they are often shown cross-legged, seated on, upon a divan, or on the bare ground. Um, and for me, this um, is becomes the, one of the main contrasts that helps me to tease out the issue of gender. Why? Um, and this is chapter four now. And this is really, um, this is an essential chapter for many reasons. But to focus on the gender question, What ends up happening is that I try to also get to the the physiognomic um, sort of understanding that the audiences would have had of these oriental cross-legged astronomers that they would have encountered. Um, And I I do this using uh, travel logs um, and a bunch of other sources. We could talk about that. And what comes out is that it is very much an indicator of something that is effete, but also the demasculated, and the cross-legged position for the Western observer in the Orient, uh, and then also of these images, it, it, for for that kind of perceiver or uh, spectator, um, these images are very much uh, images of the feminized Orient. Um, these are cross-legged uncomfortable, undifferentiated, unspecialized uh, comportments of the body for an advanced science like astronomy. So the bodily posture of the cross-legged astronomer that is oriental is seen very much as in discord with the specializations that are required by modern astronomy. And But at, at the heart of it is that these are um, emasculated images, and so one of the one of the features of the book is actually to say, look, one of you know one way to get to the questions of gender here of the nineteenth century is not just to compare male and female per se um, uh, as as um, as uh, genderized roles, but also perhaps to underst- to to widen the notion of the feminine. So, as to include, as it did, I argue, in the 19th century, the Orient. So, the Oriental also becomes the feminized counterpoint to the masculine Western astronomer. And that's teased out mostly by the cross legged posture and what it's meant to represent and index to Western audiences who see these images, but also see them live in situ uh, as they travel through what's called, again, the image of the orient imago of the orient sorry
1: yes and uh, definitely this this was uh, was another uh, this is a, a, another absolutely fascinating point of your uh, of your analysis uh, this image of the cross-legged oriental astronomers that it's uh, that it's uh, meant to be the uh, the the uh, direct uh, opposite of uh, uh, of the western uh, uh, expert, uh, viral, and uh, uh, and energetic uh, uh, astronomer, and uh, uh, one of the features of these chairs that you also uh, that you uh, uh, highlight is that they were meant to optimize the use of uh, uh, the, the the human body of uh, of the astronomers and to. Maximize the efficiency of the uh, energy of uh, of of this uh, specific kind of scientist.
0: Absolutely, uh, thank you for that. Um, the The contrast with the Orient again is not a simple convention here, but it's very much uh, a reflection of that period where this where we're talking about here about personae um, and the astronomers persona in the West is. Um, here being contrasted to the persona of the Oriental astronomer uh, in the, again, the so-called East. Um, And one of, apart from the gender issue, one of the fundamental issues of that chapter that emerges is that the cross-legged astronomers also lacks the energies, lacks the virility, the masculine virility to actually engage in something like modern science, which requires immense amounts of energy and a restlessness that is in uh, that is interconnected is is actually a prerequisite to doing the history, uh, to doing modern science. Uh, and I also show that it is also not just a prerequisite for doing modern science, but I also show in that chapter on, on the cross-legged astronomer that the same energies that that are said to not exist in the Orient and not to be. Uh, displayed in these images of Oriental astronomers who are seated cross-legged, which becomes sort of like the paradigm example of the lackluster, the energyless, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, laborer of ast- in astronomy. Um, what what comes out of this is that. This also becomes a very important way to describe the history of science itself and the history of astronomy itself. If this energy is required, we can tell the history of science by this energy and This is exactly what we find in for example, in william hewell in his in his magnum opus on the history of the inductive sciences, where he divides this the, basically all of the history of science into two periods, one that is dynamic, and that 's obviously going to be the modern western sciences, but then there is the what he calls the stationary sciences. And that for me is not at all a coincidence. That's very much that, and he explicitly uh, alludes to the the lack of energy in that stationary period. So if that is the case, so once we get this and isolate this idea of energy, and and it being as the distinctive feature uh, of modern science and a distinct, Distinctive component of astronomy, even in particular. Um, when we get to the last chapter, then this is becomes then highlighted. This becomes the entire point of that chapter, which I called um, restless energies. Um, and this is where it is, ta- it is then connected to masculinity and connected also to the to the to how this masculine energy, and then which is also then racialized as European, um, how it Flows through the circuits and conduits of empire and and colonies around the world, and so we I, I use this um, perspective of this energy, which is being displayed around the world by European colonizers and agents, but also astronomers in those in those colonies and 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 and, and in the metropole. Um, I use this to then. Uh, get right down to the astronomer's body itself. And so the big point then becomes is that that same energy which is flowing throughout the empire and in the colonies that is racialized and gendered and masculine uh, and that which sets itself apart from the Orient and other stationary cultures uh, and emasculated sciences, that same energy is to be found by definition then uh, in the astronomer's body. And what then, from that perspective then, we then have another um, feature of the observing chair, and that becomes its function to basically direct that same masculine, restless, and racialized energy of the astronomer. The astronomer's chair then is basically um, designed to function to optimize that energy so that it is not wasted in, for example, muscular aches or tension in any part of the body, but rather it the chair actually acts as an agent that directs those energies to specifically the eye. And they talk about the visual energies here. And so the, the chair itself then becomes a way to optimize astronomical observations. And that can only be fully comprehended and appreciated is if one puts that in the context of these racialized and um, and gendered energies that are prevailing the world at this time and are reflected in the mundane, the regular, the routine chair of the astronomer itself. In other words, the chair is a kind of microcosm of a macrocosm of the 19th century, and the astronomer's body in it is. Not simply then a, 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 a not simply a display of some man in comfort, but rather it's showing that that this man's energies, which are basically driving the modern world, are being well directed, are being well regulated, and well managed by that chair.
1: Yes, it's, it's quite, uh, um, I mean, uh, uh, a little bit uh, disturbing to think that the ideas, that concepts that are so relatable for us today, like uh, uh, like a comfort, wellness, uh, um, like optimizing energies, uh, uh, were linked to concepts like racism and imperialism <laughs> and so on in the, in the past and uh, well you 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 discuss also how well uh, not just these uh, devices the astronomers chairs uh, uh, arrived and uh, in uh, the visual uh, culture of uh, of europeans but also how they fade away at certain uh, at a certain point so what what's happened
0: you no know, that's a very important point now so i also i don't end the story just there i also then Try to explain the fading away uh, of the observing chair as a piece of uh, important equipment uh, in the astronomer's observatory, and so by the eighteen nineties, um, especially at the turn of the into the twentieth century, in the nineteen hundred uh, period, you get this this preference now for something else, um, and I like to say that energy is no longer. Housed in these, you know, racialized, gendered, imperial bodies, uh, but now become, um, you know, uh, put into and used in hydraulic machines and water in water in, through water, but also electricity. And what one gets instead are e- electric rising or hydraulic rising floors. Um, you get galleries uh, that are actually mechanized and, uh, and actually have engines attached to them. So observatories here now are getting not only larger telescopes where chairs seem to be a bit not appropriate to the sizes that are um, being employed, um, but you also, because of the size, you need another kind of access to these very large telescopes that are emerging in, the, in at, the, at that period of time. So you get these galleries and all, all, all these other kinds of things that are actually appearing in terms of uh, mechanized arts to access the telescope. So chairs begin to fall out of favor. Um, they don't fully disappear. That should be noted very clearly. You will still find in the middle of the 20th century, highly, highly specialized, computerized even, uh, electric chairs being built for, you know, uh, observatories at Greenwich. Um, But what begins to dominate are other forms of mechanization where um, energy is outsourced to water and electricity, uh, to rising floors, to galleries, and so on. Um, It also is important. That's one part of it. The other part of it is important to realize that um, there are things like photography that are now coming into the observatory um, where the observer doesn't actually always have to be at the chair at all times. In fact, the most of the most delicate uh, positional observations could now be made on the photographic plate. This means that the observer, observer's job now is really moved away from the telescope and into office spaces where you get ergonomic chairs, the, re- the regular serial office chairs. This becomes really the place where astronomers begin to do a lot of their work. And this only increases in the 20th century where you get a separation between working at the telescope and where which is basically becomes more like gathering the data and then working with that data and making observations becomes, uh, is actually done in a separate place, in a separate room, in remotely from the telescope, in office chairs, and by the middle of the 20th century and onwards, it gets more computerized. So you get computer screens, you get people working at office desks, and astronomers basically begin to, um, you know, you know, do most of their observations on screens by the uh, end of the 20th century. So they are now comfortably seated in all kinds of serialized, homogeneous, uh, ergonomic office chairs. Um, this is a major part of the story, the, the, the transformation of where one sits. What's curious then is that we no longer have images as dominant as the observing chair was in the 19th century of, of astronomers today working in office spaces, and that for me is an interesting uh, uh, point about what we value today so if if observing chairs reflected a certain value system, as I'm arguing they did that was global and imperial and so on, um, what do images of astronomers at work today? actually show us and what do they mean for us today? And um, that's very a bit more difficult to get to because there's very few of those kinds of images. Rather, there's a preference now for images of what we call pretty pictures, nebulae, the recent black hole. This becomes the way that astronomy now is, pub- that's the public face of astronomy now. Um, and that just represents tectonic shifts in what I'm calling the representational fields of of science uh, and so things do change and these these values are changing and they ref- are reflected in what our furniture index to us in different periods in different times in different places.
1: Yes, definitely. Thinking about the uh, if I if I have to to, to picture in, uh, in uh, uh, my mind's eye an astronomers now uh i really imagine someone wearing a, a white coat uh, and uh sitting in a in, in an office uh and uh, uh it's less uh, heroic and romantic as image compa- uh, compared to uh, one of uh, the 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 dozen of of images that uh, that uh, one could find in your uh, in your uh, in your book but well, this is you, this is not the, the very end of uh, of your uh, of uh, your work because uh, you uh, conclude uh, your uh, your book with uh, a chapter discussing uh, the uh, psychoanalytical couch, Freud's uh, couch. So c- can uh, can you explain how it is related to the main topic of your uh, of your work?
0: Yeah, so I I, I end the book off with. Uh, with Freud's couch, um, and the reason I do that is because I feel like I built enough of a kind of representational field, um, you know, with its with its 19th century and early 20th century, you know, systems of values and assumptions that informed that field, and that conditioned how we see furniture. I I feel that I felt that I had built enough of something like that to then begin interpreting or trying my hand to interpret another piece of furniture in science from about the same or overlapping period. And and so I used the equipment and the results and some of the conclusions that I came up with to cast some new light, uh, perhaps a new understanding of the role, the function, even the design of Freud's couch For his science of psychoanalysis. And um, what's what's fundamental here is a few aspects of that older representational field that I basically spend the whole book detailing come to inform our understanding of Freud's couch. And so one of these aspects is the historicism that's ever-present in the 19th century representational field that is used to inform our, our perspective on those observing chairs. And this historicism is very much a, a, an Enlightenment legacy that basically is progressive uh, and basically says something like, we're all moving to, um, you know, more advanced states, um, and it's a linear kind of teleological move. But even more fundamental is that what's left behind are other cultures, other people's other races. Um and the, the ones who are left behind in the representational field of the 19th century and in, in this historicism um, are very much thought to be surmounted, overcome. Um, and that is part of the triumphant legacy of, of this teleological progression of history. And this is, again, this is the rep, one of the features of the representational field that I use to inform my work on the observing chair. Um, that then I bring to with me to my interpretation of Freud's couch. Um, and what I find is really interesting is that what Freud is able to do is that he inverts this historicism so that it's no longer a matter of surmounting or overcoming the inferior races or inferior peoples or cultures who have now been basically annihilated or 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 subjugated. Um, rather what he proposes is that um these are still with us, and they're never going to go away. They're still a part of who we are, and the danger is not so much um, annihilation. It's more, it's more that we may revert as Western modern European white people um, that we may actually revert to these lower savage barbaric states. So this this is uh, this atavism is very, very much in the forefront of Freud's um, uh, perspective. Um, and, it, and, and, it, and it forms, that's the representational field that informs his couch. So his couch then is basically laden with a divan, right? It becomes a divan, and it's, it's orientalized with a Turkish carpet. In fact, one of his patients called it the analytic divan. And Freud would often refer to it as the analytic divan as well, recognizing the orientalized nature of this divan. And so, not only was this was this couch laden with a Turkish carpet, but the walls were, the floors were. He even had uh, many, nearly two thousand um, um, uh, statues and artifacts uh, from antiquity, many of them coming from the so-called Orient. Um, this then I wanted to understand in the context of what I've just written. And so what it what what ends up happening is that I try to show that the observing couch, which is which is for the astronomer, the en- energized and regulated manner of observing the heavens, for Freud's observing couch, that is the divan, that is the analytic divan or the, the, the Freud's couch, is actually a means of regulating those energies in a way that can help the observer himself go or herself into themselves rather, rather than into the cosmos. So um, the going into oneself is a historicized journey into different layers of one's own self, where one might find the Orient, where one might find the Savage and Barbaric and the African. And so the very layer of the Freud's psychoanalytic couch is orientalized, For two purposes, then. First, it's meant to be the very first strata, the very first layer that allows the patient to be sunk in to that journey that they're going to be taking back into time, back into their history. And that is not just a personal history, but also a collective history in this historicism. And secondly, they're going to access these not only these these layers and strata but that this orientalized observing couch actually is operating precisely according to the same associations that i try to tease out in the book and that is this is where slumber happens this is where you will now regulate your energies in a way that subdues them and brings them down because after all this is the this is the, this is the period of nervousness and so the the orientalized couch then is very much a, a way to a kind of talisman to ease the modern um east uh, sorry west european patient into you know other historical strata of their time so this this is this is the interpretation but i'm only able to give this interpretation thanks to the representational fields I've built up to understand the astronomer's chair, and it just so happens that one of um, one of uh, Freud's most famous patients, H.D., she's known as H.D., a poet, um, Hilda Doodle, Doolittle. Her father was a major astronomer, and she. I use this 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 uh, juxtaposition between her at her at her father father's observatory where she used to play around his observing chair and now hers laying recumbent on Freud's orientalized divan or anal- analytic divan. Um, and I, I, I tease out the relationships between what Freud is doing in observations and what the astronomer does in observations
1: yes this this makes uh, makes uh, makes perfectly sense and uh, actually adds so much uh, uh, significance to an understanding to another object of that uh, well it's part of our uh, visual culture of uh, the people of 20th and the 21st uh, century but uh, well uh, you really cannot uh, uh, imagine uh, such a deep uh, so many so many layers uh, underneath uh, this, uh, the surface of uh, of uh, the material piece of uh, of furniture. So I have one last question. So uh, you are well, the, our listener cannot cannot see you, but uh, uh, well, you are sitting on a chair. Would you describe it as an academic chair?
0: <laughs> Actually, the chair that I'm sitting in and using is a gaming chair. I thought it would be <sighs> comfortable, but it's not comfortable at all. <laughs> <laughs>
1: This is a good point. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much to uh, to Omar Nazim for this uh, for this conversation. So uh, the title of the book is uh, The Astronomer's Chair. It's published by the uh, MIT uh, Press. So uh, I hope that uh, this that uh, uh, this uh, conversation will uh, tease your curiosity and uh, that uh, all of you will be uh, interested in uh, discovering uh, this. Uh, 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 this, uh, this work and uh, digging deeper into the uh, understanding of uh, uh, this very specific uh, uh, item. Thank you so much and uh, have a nice day.